Hello, I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Coming up after the news, it's philosophy talk. Uh, what's the topic today, Ken? Paternalism and health. You know, sometimes people can't take care of themselves, can't decide for themselves, and we have to do it for them. How, how do we do that? Well, you mean like Alzheimer's patients, people in persistent vegetative states, demented people, crazy people, people like that? Yeah, that's the kind of people I have in mind. I mean, what, what, how do we go about deciding what's best for them? Well, we just decide what's best for them. We carry it out in a way that more or less respects their dignity. What's the big problem? Oh, I mean, that's easy to say, but what does it mean to respect their dignity? We'll dig into these issues about paternalism and health care on Philosophy Talk coming up after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW Information Radio in San Francisco. But my wisdom and Ken's wit was formed at Stanford University's Philosopher's Corner, where we've been colleagues for many years. Yeah, today we're going to talk about uh, paternalism and healthcare. Paternalism is when you decide on behalf of somebody else, you know, who's maybe autonomous, uh, rational, informed. What they should do. Well, I think in thinking about paternalism and healthcare, Ken, it's it's good to start with paternalism in something that isn't healthcare, but paternalism and and having the things you're patter of, that is children, right? I mean, with respect to children, we think paternalism is okay, I guess. Not only okay, required. It's how, yeah, you can get in trouble for not being paternalistic. Yeah, you have probably. to decide for your children lots of things. Now, why is that? Because they can't decide for themselves? They're not rational? I mean, my son's kind of rational. Well, I, I actually think it's good to divide children into two groups, the, the, the real children and you know, the young kids, the elementary school age, they really don't have the perception and information gathering characteristics that are needed to make them fully rational and autonomous. Uh, but then when you get to teenagers, oh. they're really rational. They know their desires. They most of them are better on the internet and read faster than I do. Yeah, and I know you uh, raised but, several but we teenagers. Still, yeah, I, I think you were pretty paternalistic even when they were teenagers, right? Well, I certainly tried, uh, and I guess the idea was, look, you've got this future self, this 25-year-old, and you've got this 15-year-old, and why should the 25-year-old be yoked to the preferences and desires and, and sometimes odd but hard-to-argue-with beliefs of the 15-year-old. Yeah, that, that makes That's sense. That's quite a different basis than right. with a small child. So though. we have a better conception of what their future self might prefer as, as adults, and we kind of impose that on them. You know, that helps well, me think of... Well, we may care more about their future self than they do. Well, that's true, too. That helps me think about why we might be paternalistic with respect to, say, an Alzheimer's patient, how we might justify that. Because an Alzheimer's patient maybe doesn't have these capacities, you know, and if you're in severe late stages of Alzheimer's, your memory's gone, your ability to reason's gone, because reasoning is very connected to memory and all that, right? But we think, well, we're going to decide on their behalf. Well, how are we going to do that? We're going to consider what their past self would have wanted. Their past, mature, autonomous, informed self would have wanted this, and now they don't want this, but we, we, we just like with the, with the, with the kid, well, what do you think it's, of that? Well, it, I mean, it's a very nice analogy, and it's very symmetrical and perfect, but there is this one difference, and that's the difference between the past and the future. I mean, the Alzheimer's patient that's sitting there with not much caring what they smell like, not much caring about where they scratch themselves, 
why should they be bound by, by what the earlier self, who might be very embarrassed by that behavior, thought? No, that's I mean, a- you, it's not that there's going to be this later Alzheimer's patient that's going to look back and be glad that you didn't let their life be shaped by this. This person is... Not, that's just not going to be the case. So that, I'm a little a, suspicious, although I think that is the way we think. That's a very good, you, you know, you have a good point. Uh, Amy Standen, our roving philosophical reporter, went out and talked to two families who suffered through the ordeal of, of Alzheimer's to help us think about this issue. She uh, files this report. Oh, he was a male chauvinist. He was from Europe. This is Doris. She's been married to Frank for 56 years. He had never let me drive the car before. Even if he had to drive 19 hours, I never drove. So driving here to California from New Hampshire, I'd say, are you tired? Uh, could I drive? And he'd say, yes. And this was the first time he ever said yes. he just let me drive. It was one of the many signs that Doris's husband, Eddie, was giving up control. I already had the feeling that things were changing, that he wasn't the same man. His memory was going, and he wasn't as clear thinking. And it was just something that I felt. It wasn't noticeable to other people, but it was to me. Eight years ago, Doris's suspicions were confirmed when a doctor diagnosed Eddie with Alzheimer's disease. And over the years, things just got worse. Uh, When he asked me how to brush his teeth, when he asked me how to shave, what he should do in the shower, And I was bathing him, showering him, shaving him, brushing his teeth, because he no longer could do it. Today, Doris lives with Frank, who she met at the daycare center where Frank brought his wife, Jean, who also suffers from Alzheimer's. When I go to the home, Jean greets me like, you know, a long-lost friend. She may greet me five times in the course of an hour because she forgets if she takes a walk with Frank that she saw me before. Eddie and Jean together, we often come in and their uh, heads are together or they're kissing or something, and it's very sweet. It's like a family. Together, Doris and Frank have watched their spouses decline to the point where they both had to be moved to a residential care facility. Looking back, Frank says that one of the first and toughest landmarks of Jean's Alzheimer's was when she learned she could no longer drive. She'd called me twice in a period of six months that she couldn't find a car in a parking lot in Westgate, which is a mile and a half from where we live, and we've lived there 37 years, so it's a very known territory. A couple of years after that, she was diagnosed. The doctor, and the first thing he said after the test, he says, you cannot drive anymore. And there was a lot of protest. He said, I drive anyway. What's the big deal? It was to her... A big blow. I think she cried for about a week and pestered me to drive for another six months. And then she forgot it. And that's the way it works with this disease. They may protest initially, but the Alzheimer's patient eventually surrenders the keys to his or her own life. Losing independence is very important to all of us. And I know that someday it's going to happen to me. I'm not going to be very happy, but that's the way it is. For Philosophy Talk, this is Amy Standen. You can listen to the rest of this program by purchasing it at iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.